And again, the book of Judges, that time in Jewish history, about 1500 to 1100 BC, they've come into the promised land. God's given them the land, but they didn't expel the people that need to be expelled. And so they've gone into intermarriages. They've made covenants, gone after false gods, and they've pretty much made a mess of everything. But by God's grace, he continues to raise up judges to give them leadership. He put his spirit on these judges, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Ehud, and others, Othniel, and Jephna, and they've, they've, they've been solid, and they've brought, they've been good leadership. You know, leadership is so crucial, and they've been good leaders to be deliverers for God's people in the midst of very difficult times. And so we saw two weeks ago where from before he was born, Samson was set aside as a Nazarite to the Lord. That is, nothing off the vine, no touching dead bodies, and his hair is not cut. It was a consecration that you usually made as an adult, but God made it for him before he was even born, which is amazing. Like, just so amazing to think like that consecrated and set apart was Samson. So we saw the story about the announcement of his birth to his parents. Then we also saw that when he became a man, he took for himself, he asked for a woman from the Philistines to be his wife, and we saw that was a colossal disaster for everybody. So many people died and suffered. It was just, just went from bad to worse and all the things. So now, when we left off two weeks ago in the back end of chapter 15, there's this summary that he judged Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So we get his adversaries, the Philistines, and we get the timeline of his rule and reign, if you will, influence as a judge. Unlike all the other judges, though, Samson is not affiliated with an army or leading an army. He's just Samson. He's a one-man army. So he's very unique in this book. And of course, really, all the characters are, and that's what they are. They're all characters in their own way, just like all of us in this room, and they're all unique. But Samson, this is his thing. He's supposed to be a Nazarite. So now, in the latter part of his life, so he's probably in his mid-40s, maybe, you know, like he reigned 20 years, right? You just kind of start putting a timeline. About that point in life, we read this in chapter 16, verse 1. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot, and there he went into her. When the Gazites were told, they said, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place to lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they were quiet all night, saying, In the morning, when it is daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he rose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, and the two gateposts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. This is the first part of Samson tonight. So here he is, he's his judge, he's wiped out a thousand Philistines already with the jawbone of a donkey, and he's, he terrifies the Philistines, and he was a deliverer who brought the wrath of God on the Philistines, we cannot omit that because we saw that in the previous chapters two weeks ago. He is God's instrument of wrath and judgment upon the Philistines who are condemned by God for their wickedness, and they're under his judgment, and he is the tool and the vessel of that judgment. But here now, in the, this latter part, we read about that he, he took this woman who's a harlot, and it's a progressive crossing of the lines. And this is what we see with Samson. Because first, he crossed the line to go after a Philistine woman when he knew that's, that's not what God had for him. And he pursued that. And he made his parents, he talked to his parents about getting into that and getting her as his wife. Then he crossed the line by hanging out in vineyards because he's not supposed to even drink grape juice. And he's hanging out in vineyards. Then he crosses the line and he touches the dead body of the lion. And he's not supposed to touch dead bodies that the honey was in. He kept crossing lines. He just kept kind of 
pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. I think we can all relate to this. It's in the human nature. Pastor Chuck Smith used to talk about there's something that's fascinating with evil that our flesh is appealed to. And it's true. James Dobson focused on the family. When he talks about sexual morality or proper sexual intimacy, he, back in the day, had this whole thing like how there's essentially like 12 lines you cross when you move towards sexual intimacy with another human being. And he talked about that once you cross those lines, rarely do you revert back from those lines, particularly, obviously, if it's before marriage. So it's a, it's a progressive crossing of lines and not coming back from them. And I think many of us, unfortunately, know that that's how that works. You rarely reclaim. You can maybe stop where you're crossing the line, but you rarely reclaim and reverse from lines you crossed. So really what we're talking about here is crossing the line. So now this is what we get later on. This is what we get with Samson. The man who's always crossing lines. He's in his 40s, very handsome, super strong. He's just the talk of all Israel and all of the the Philistines, all of Palestine. But instead of now seeing a woman when he's probably a virgin that he wants to have as a wife and ask his parents to get her, now he's just, this this is what happens with the sons of Adam and actually two daughters of Eve. He's crossed the line so many times he doesn't need mom and dad to go get him and the woman. He just goes down into the enemy's camp, and he sleeps with a harlot. That's just, that's just what he did. That's just who he was. First, he sees a woman in his youth that is outside across the line. And now, this is what you get 20 years later. He sees this harlot. And he's just like, that's, that's what happens. Crossing the line is always scary. We have to be really careful what lines we cross because we rarely come back from them. And boundaries are a good thing. In fact, we're told not to remove the ancient boundaries. It's really important that we, we, we respect the boundaries that God has. Unfortunately, we live in a society where those boundaries have just been completely obliterated by, our, our, by portions of our government and certainly large portions of our society and pseudo-intellectualism. So good is evil and evil is good. And these lines have been crossed. And now it's imposed upon the next generation and this generation of Americans that have way less opportunity than any previous generation. But alas, the church still exists as we prayed for Buck tonight, right? Church is still the church in every generation. We're going forward in every generation. So even in Buck's generation, if everyone else chooses to cross the line, he's wise not to cross the line. Because we all just come and go, and then eternity will be, it'll be what it'll be. But Samson having his eyes gouged out and essentially committing a suicide attack against his adversaries, there just was a better ending for him, I'm sure. And he had a great life. He did many great things for the Lord. But that's just what happens. You see, you see the woman that you shouldn't have, and you get your parents involved, and then 20 years later, you just go sleep with the harlot because that's what you do. And that's very scary and sobering to me and all of us in this room tonight. Be careful what lines we cross. And if we have to scramble back across to get back across lines we shouldn't be across, good for us. And may the Lord help us in that. And yet he still has all this superpower. He can still rip the door, the gates off the city gates and carry them. It's like he's invincible and he really is invincible. He's totally invincible, but like all men from the dust he came, the dust will return. 
And, he, and God's grace is upon him with this supernatural power still. He's sleeping with the prostitute, and yet he still has a supernatural power to rip these doors off the, the gate. And, and these men are, there are men plotting to kill him like gangsters. Think gangsters, think thugs, think criminal, think cartel. These are gangster, gnarly guys that want to kill him. He's in Oresiudad. He's in, he's, he's a bad dude in, in the bad place with the really bad people. And he's sleeping with a prostitute, and they all know it, and they're all waiting to kill him. And he just marches out of there at midnight like, what? What are you going to do? What? He is a bad dude. And these are bad dudes that want to kill him. It, it seems almost like you're reading Greek, a Greek mythology or something. This is the real deal, and this has really happened. This really is this man that could sleep with a prostitute and still have the power of God to rip the gates off the city and cross the river and just go like, what? That's who he was at this point. But alas, he crossed one line too many. For in verse 4 we read, After it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. I have to stop there because this is a key thought. He loved a woman. Up in this point in time, we're told he saw a woman, a Philistine woman. He saw a harlot. He killed a lion with the Holy Spirit upon him, but then he touched the dead body of the lion. He walked in vineyards, but he's gone from seeing to hovering to giving his heart away. He gave his heart away. He gave his heart away to the wrong woman. Lust is one thing, and men that lust in some ways can be in control if they don't love. But when a man loves a woman, man, it's for better or for worse. And for most of us, we only think of it as better, right? When a man, when a man loves a woman the way God wants a man to love a woman, it's a beautiful thing. When you get married, you give your heart away. When Frank and Jennifer gave their hearts to each other that wedding evening. It was so special. Danny Donnelly doing the music. Oh, it was so beautiful. And now look, this is, that's the way it's meant to be. But if you're living in sin and you're sleeping with prostitutes, then you give your heart to Delilah. I'm thinking she's probably not the right woman for the Nazarite. And of course, the story would prove she's not. That's the danger you can lust and you can flirt and you can walk and you can hover, but once you love, it is, it is. You're ensnared. Samson loved this woman. See, we think of her like as the harlot. We think of her as like, the, like that, that evil woman. Like every generation has the, the bad woman songs and then every generation has the women singing about bad guys, like loser guys. But the guys know the evil woman song. You're like, you know, electric orchestra, right? Like the evil woman, like, the, you know, Santana, you know, black magic woman. There's like, there's, there, there's men write songs about evil women. Proverbs tell us, stay away from the harlot. She does this, she plots this, she does that. And this is the woman. That's the woman he chose to love. He loved a woman that was going to destroy him. And like Solomon said, is going to reduce... Solomon would say 200 years later, for Solomon would find out himself as well, 
that the harlotrous woman will reduce a man to a crust of bread. That's a very descriptive, that's, uh, that's very descriptive. Like, that's like a crust of bread. Just, ah, it's just reduced. Some would say that all who go there, they go to hell and they never come back. So, the progression of crossing the lines, touching dead animals, walking in vineyards and seeing and wanting as a wife and then seeing and just sleeping with the harlot. Now it's just, he loved a woman in the Valley of Sorek, which is Philistine territory. Birds of a feather flock together. And if you hang out with the dark side and live like the dark side, you eventually will become the dark side. Because the Bible tells us, do not be, be deceived, for bad company corrupts good morals. And it's so much better to be ostracized and, and ridiculed for being light and being consecrated and being set apart than to be compromising and capitulating and surrendering things that can never be the same once they're lost. And we've been seeing this as we've been going through the book of Judges. But that phrase just jumps out at us. He hung around the, long, the wrong things long enough that eventually he wasn't just lusting after or flirting with or hovering around the wrong things. He loved the wrong things. That is so sobering for all of us in this room tonight. We read on in verse 5. And so the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, uh, entice him and find out where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So she, they basically come and say, look, we want to kill him. So we want you to betray this man who loves you. She didn't love him. She's going to betray him. Now, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. She's getting a lot more than that. They say that everyone has their price. Everyone has their price point. Hopefully our price point is the blood of Jesus and we're never moved from it. We want that to be our price point, the blood of the lamb, that that's uncompromising. But people that understand money and power and, and control, they have a price. I wonder how many people sold their souls in the last two years to betray this country and true science. At what price point? What judges in America defied the will of the people with Proposition 8 in California in 2008. What'd they get? From whom? For how much? I used to think, like, how can I get even with these people and make them pay for their injustices? But now they're 12 years older, and so am I. We're all 12 years closer to the throne of God and accountability. These traitors, collaborators, betray our country, betray our Constitution, betray the will of the people. They make me sick. And they have a price point. And even as Delilah betrayed Samson, there are people in our government, in our country, who betrayed our Constitution and even sworn to defend it and betrayed us and the system that our forefathers gave us. But alas, we'll stop right there. Everyone has their price. You know, the more you find out about how corrupt things really are in politics, the more you don't want to know anything about it. And that's why I don't really even know anything that's going on right now. Ignorance is bliss when it comes to men and women in power who lust for it and abuse it. 
Knowledge is powerful for those who seek the Lord and walk in his word and understand its meaning and apply it in wisdom to their lives and let it shape and guide them. Be wise in spiritual things and, and be innocent concerning evil. That's who we want to be. She's going to betray him. Entice him. Because he's very enticeable. It doesn't say that, but we know that. Samson can be easily enticed. This guy's a Nazarite walking right in to the right into Gaza and just sleeping with prostitutes and flexing on the way out. He can be enticed. This, this woman is going to destroy him. But really, who destroyed Samson? Delilah or Samson? Samson destroyed Samson. You know, the Lord was with him all the way till the point of when he betrayed himself by giving away his secret. The Lord was with him. Even in his carnality, and even though I did, the Lord was with him. But when he portrayed that secret place with him and the Lord of his Nazarite vow, it would never be the same. So for 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah, verse 6, said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. Talk about a woman telling you her intentions. But men love to flirt with these kind of women. Now, you women aren't these kind of women, so you don't understand this. There's something about the naughty women that, like Pastor Chuck said, there's just something that, but you know, there's a lot of women that go for the naughty guys too. There's a lot of women that are attracted to the naughty guys. That was my sister's whole problem. I tell people my sister was homeless and on the streets for six years, not just because of pharmaceutical drugs and alcohol, but bad men. She was determined to pursue the cool bad boys. The cool bad guys of the 80s. The cool bad guys of the 90s. The cool bad guys of the 2000s. The guys that were kind of handsome, about 6'2", handsome, funny, full of themselves, narcissistic. They all drove big trucks. If you drive a big truck, don't take it personal. <laughs> I'd like a big truck. I just can't have it because I'm a pastor. <laughs> but they all drove big trucks. And they're all bad guys. They all had trouble obeying the rules. They all were unfaithful to previous women. My sister always thought she was going to be one that fixed them and won them to to the Lord to make good decisions. You know that story. There just it wasn't Delilah. It was Samson, and it wasn't the evil men my sister chose. It was her. She chose to go after married men who were cheating on their wives. Those were her choices. Even as we all understand in our own lives. So in verse 7 we read, And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dry, then I shall become weak and I'll be like other men. But he's not like other men. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it's touched his fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, you've mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what would be 
that you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. But he's not meant to be like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave seven locks on my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the the baton of the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the baton and the web from the loom. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass that she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. See, by the end of verse 16, he's just lost his strength. He's been, he's, he's lost discernment. He's been deceived and he's, he's, he's beaten down. He's defeated. That third time, the hair gets involved, right? Did you catch that? The third time, the hair is involved. Marco Polo, Marco Polo, like the water game, you know, in a pool you play as a kid. Marco Polo getting closer. Getting closer now. Getting closer now. It's just, it's a sad story. And who, it's just, I don't, I don't even want to understand a relationship like this. And I know you don't want to understand a relationship like this, but there's people that have relationships like this. This is what they do. You know, it's, it's like this. It's, it's volatile and it's passionate or whatever. And man, but his soul was vexed to death. And she accused him of not loving her, but in fact, he actually did. So then verse 17, he told her all of his heart. There it is. He told her all of his heart and said to her, no razor has ever come upon my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me and I will become weak and I'll be like other men. But you're not meant to be like other men. That's the whole point of being a Nazarite. When Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines saying, come up once more for he has told me all of his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his, Philist- and his strength left him. And-, and she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put, put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. And they bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. So this is, his, this is that final chapter of his life that he did not know the Lord had departed from him. That's about as terrifying as any verse in the Bible, right? Like, I mean, that's a really terrifying verse. Like, I mean, we're WG here. Isn't this a scary verse? Like the Lord had departed from him? Oh my goodness. Like that's like, the, oh my goodness. That's just the, like the worst. That's like Saul 100 years later or whatever. It's just like, that's the worst thing you can imagine. The Lord departing from him. And the Lord did depart from him in that sense. At this point, it's like adultery with him and the Lord. For all that he had done, all the sexual morality and all these things, the Lord had not left him. And he had the supernatural power of the Nazarite. But once the hair was cut, he got away with touching the dead body and hanging out in vineyards. 
But once the hair was cut, that was, that was the hat trick. That was, that was the end. He crossed that line that he could never come back from. It's like, again, we talked about this just a few weeks ago. We cross, certain lines we cross. God can forgive. God can heal. He can restore. He can bring good things where there's brokenness. But some things can, they're, they're just, they can't be the same. I remember at Calvary Costa Mesa when I was on staff there one night at church, uh, a man came up to me who'd just gotten out of prison for seven years for a DUI killing someone. He killed a 17-year-old girl going the wrong way on the street. He was very sincere about his faith. He had made all the good decisions in prison for seven years. He could never bring that person back, though. Crossed that line, got in the vehicle, intoxicated, and took an innocent life of a 17-year-old girl. Took that future from her, took it from her family and her friends. And we know that this happens. This happens in the human experience. Every day it happens. Sometimes by accident, but sometimes self-determination of bad choices. He made a really bad choice, and it would never be the same for him. His eyes are gouged out. So his adulthood is introduced to us while he sees and wants the lust of the eyes, as described in the Bible. And his eyes, he saw the harlot, and now he doesn't see anything. God took away his eyes. God allowed his eyes to be gouged out. But he allowed his hair to grow back, which is merciful. And so we, we read out and close out Samson with verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, the fish god, and to rejoice. Isn't it always a spiritual battle, by the way? It's always a spiritual battle. When Jephthah's like, hey, you know, like, if Chamosh is your boy, let him give you what he's going to give you. But our God's Jehovah, and is what he gave us. So it's always a spiritual battle. They're celebrating with Dagon, the fish god. Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the story of our land, and the one who multiplied our death. And so it happened with their hearts were merry. They, they said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. And so they called for Samson from the prison, and he performed for them. And they stationed him between pillars. And then Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so I can lean on them. And now the temple was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord. And by the way, this is the first time we see him calling to the Lord, right? He called to the Lord. This is a broken man. He never called to the Lord when he was ripping gates off the city after being with a prostitute. But when your eyes are gouged out and you're a grinder, and they're mocking you by the name of Dagon, the fish god, finally, a broken man. Finally, the place of brokenness. And his request in the place of brokenness is consistent with the purpose of his life and his calling and the will of God. So in his brokenness, what he asks for is consistent with the purpose of his life, to be the instrument of wrath, God's wrath on these evil people. So really, in his blindness and his brokenness, he's now unified again to the will of God in his life. Oh, Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O oh God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. 
And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple, and he braced himself against them, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's, and all the people were in it. So the dead that were he killed in his death were more than he killed in his life. And his brothers and his father's household came down and took him and brought him up and buried him in Zorah. And Eshtal, the tomb of his father, Manoah, he had judged Israel for 20 years. So he prays to God and he asks for vengeance for his eyes. But in what he's asking for, again, it's consistent with what the purpose of his life was and for the will of God. It's a, it's a lesser version, I'm sure, of what his life was meant to be. But nonetheless, in his final moment, there's something that's glorious about it and that he actually fulfills his calling more that moment than any other time in his life. He fulfilled more his calling without his eyes and in his brokenness in his last breath than he did his entire life with his eyes playing games in the vineyard and touching dead lions and making riddles from it. But this phrase in verse 30, let me die at the Philistines. Let me die with the Philistines. You might as well. You, t- you picked your wife from them. You hung out with them. You went after their prostitutes. In fighting them, you also surrendered to them. You fought them, but you were one of them, and you surrendered to them. You served Jehovah, but you lived like the people who served Dagon. And in the end, he died as one of them. I would prefer that we die as saints. Not taking life, but giving life. That's how we want to go. What a... You know, the whole, a couple chapters ago, the whole thing, the wedding day and all that, it's, it's such a muddy, messy story. It's so messy. It, it, it's like it could be a, like a 16-episode thing, you know, like on TV or whatever. Just, it's so drawn out. Telenovela. It's so drawn out. And the ending is telenovela. All of it. Which just tells us in the epilogue of his life, Man, if God gives you something special, keep it special. Value it, treasure it, and let it be special till the day of Christ Jesus. Now, these next two chapters, 17 is very short, and they're connected. And they're narrative, but there's, there's one key thought we're going to get from them. So we'll, we'll press forward now. Chapter 17. Now, there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. So this is near the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that was taken from you, that were taken from you, on which you put a curse, even saying in my ears, here's the silver with me, I took it. So this man, Micah, stole, interestingly enough, 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. We just saw the whole thing with Delilah and her shekels of silver. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. Isn't it, people do the weirdest things when they invoke religion with their carnality. May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. This is what happens when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. 
So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. This is so weird, isn't it? Like, it's just so weird. Like, you're talking about the Lord, and you're talking about building idols at the same time. Like, you're just like, just, it's like people who say they're Christians, and then they just embrace all this nonsense outside these doors. Oh, I'm a Christian too. And then I'm a Christian too, but, you know, I'm for this and I'm for that and I'm for this. It's like, you might as well be Micah with the silver things and building idols. You're just doing your own thing, man. You're not doing God's thing. You're not doing the Word of God thing or the Holy Spirit thing, the Jesus thing. You're just, you're just doing the Micah thing. So again, Verse 4, thus he returned the silver to his mother. His mother took 200 shekels of silver, gave them to the silversmith, and he made, into, made it into a carved image as a molded image that were, that were in the house of Micah. The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod. Here we go again, remember Gideon? Uh, and the household idols, and he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Like, this is so... Unfortunately, this is church 2021 planet earth when you don't have solid pastors and teachers who believe the word of god is the word of god in preaching the gospel and teaching the whole counsel of god you're going to get weird things and you're going to get off track and if you don't have people encouraged to come together like the book of acts you know in fellowship in prayer and the breaking of bread in serving one another, in simplicity of heart, serving the Lord, and sharing with one another. If you don't have that, if you forsake the assembly of the brethren, which is the matter of some, and so much more as we see the day approaching, and miss the stirring up of love and good works, or you make your gathering about something other than Jesus Christ being the center of all, you're going to get this stuff. And there, So it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. There was no central key head over the people of covenant. But the church never has to be that because Jesus has given us his word and the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and understand of all things. And he is always over his church. He is always to be in the midst of his church, over his church, the preeminent one of the church. And the church is always to be the pillar and ground of truth in every generation. So we never have to be like the time of judges in the church. Christ is always to be enthroned in our hearts and in his church. And when a church gets away from Christ being the center of the church and the preeminent one and being the sufficiency of all things for life and godliness, the church is headed for trouble. Because then pastors, leaders, congregants, everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. And they just get off track. And they call themselves Christians and they say they love Jesus and they they get weird. And weird gets weirder. And we just don't want to be that way. I didn't write this chapter. The Holy Spirit did. And it's unpleasant. But it's very real. Everyone do what's right in his own eyes. That's why it's so important. We come here twice a week. And whether it's me or Sam or Garrett or Anthony or Chris Gonzalez or whoever and Dan Donnelly and Jeff Anderson and Joe Hinchesfield, it's so important we get together twice a week and we praise the name of Jesus and we get in here and we give him praise and make him the center of our worship and our soul and our very being. And we raise our hands and we stand and we sit and we kneel, but we praise his name. And we do it twice a week. And it's so important that whoever gets in this pulpit opens his Bible 
this living word and teaches it in its context in application for all of us. As it says in Revelation 22, the pure water flowing from the throne. We don't want to teach you muddied water. We don't come with little agendas and little things like this and that. It's the pure, this is the pure water. These are unpleasant things, right? You know, Samson and the harlot, Samson and Delilah, Micah and his shrine. But it's still pure water because this is the living word. And this is the whole counsel of God. It's so easy to make little shrines, little idols, and little ephods. But if you keep Jesus as the king over the church, in our hearts, and we don't do what's right in our own eyes and convince ourselves that something wrong is right, but we let God be true and man a liar, we will be just fine. The church will be fine. The universal church will be fine. And you personally will be fine. That's just the way it's meant to be. That's why Paul said, I'm innocent in the blood of all men because I've not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And that, that's, that's just how it's meant to be. Verse 7, now there was a young man in Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. And the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. And then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, so he went north. Uh, and he came to the house of Micah and he, as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, oh, where, where, where do you come from? So I said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. Micah said, hey, dwell with me and be a, be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. This is called church your own way. Church of your own way, not church, you know, the way, the book of Acts is called the way. This is church of your own way. Where people just do church their own way. Like, we all, we've all met, you've walked with the Lord long enough. You've met people like, oh, well, we're, we do church in our home and this is the way we do it. It's like, oh, that's kind of odd, you know, like, okay. Like, it's just, it's just, it's weird. You know, everyone, everyone wants a life coach, you know, like, we're going to get a life coach, you know, like a coach, we're going to get a life coach. I've seen people so abuse the ministry, but no matter how much they abuse the ministry, and how much they compromise the integrity of the ministry, they can always get 60 people to fall them right off a cliff. And they just restart again with another 60 people, which is scary because we're about 60 people. So I don't want to be that guy, and I don't want you to be those 60 people. But some people, they can just, they're, they're, like, the, they're like the Levite from Judah. Hey, sustenance, 10 shekels a year, that's a savings. I got this. I got a roof over my head. This is a good gig. That sounds very religious, doesn't it? It sounds like a religious hookup. And yet, Micah, in his mind, is so twisted. He's like, now I know the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. That's religion. You get superstitious. Like, oh, God's going to be good to me because I have... If you just apply the word, the word, they, they're supposed to go to the tabernacle in Shiloh. You're not supposed to offer up offerings just anywhere in Israel. Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. You're not supposed to make idols. Like, what part of the Ten Commandments don't you get? You'll make, make no graven images. So they're making graven images and then saying, well, you know, the, the Lord's going to be good to me because i got a Levite priest. Like, this is what religion and superstition does. And when you deal with people like this, it's so exasperating, isn't it? Like when you try and help them understand like just the gospel of grace and the word of God, and, and it's like 
just so superstitious. I don't know what it is about human nature, but people prefer religious superstition more often than not than just sincerity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. I don't know why. But they do. So we leave off right there. Now we pick up chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Yep, we've established that, haven't we? <laughs> in case we forgot, it's going to be reaffirmed. There's no king in Israel. These people are meandering without good leadership. And no one's seeking the Lord. And they're not applying his word. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance uh, for itself to dwell in. For until that day, the inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. So the children of Dan sent five men from their families, from their territory, men of valor, from Zorah and Eshaw, to spy out the land and search it. So they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. And while they are at the house of Micah, they, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. It's, dude, it's that Levite from Judah. So they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? And he said, oh, thus and so Micah did for me. He's hired me. I've become a, his priest. So they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord will be with you on your way. That actually is a correct statement. Because this would be correct because the Danites are to receive an inheritance. And as long as someone other than an Israelite is occupying that land in the promised land, that's theirs to get. That's theirs to get. You remember all that incompleteness in the book of Joshua where they didn't close the deal and go drive out the people? So really, the Levites saying, oh, God's going to prosper you. That's not the, the spoken word. That's the written word. That's God's word. Like, they would have that assurance from God's word. So he's just affirming what God promised them in the book of Joshua, in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. So yeah, that is true. We know that. Verse 7, so the five men departed and went to Laish, and they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely and in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There was no ruler in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, that's Lebanon, and they had no ties with anyone. So these were people all isolated by themselves. They had no affiliation, no uh, network, no allegiances. They were just a random group of people. Kind of like how all the Indian tribes were in America back in the day, and some would just be like some random tribe by itself. You know, some of those tribes were very peaceful. You had to have allegiances. You, you, had, you know, World War I is allegiances. It's allegiances. It's, it's France and England together, you know, and Russia. That was the allegiance that broke the Prussians, the Germans, and the Austria-Hungarian, and Italy, and these allegiances. You see, these people are all by themselves. Then the spies came back to their brethren, verse 8, at Zorah and Eshtal and their brethren, and said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go, enter, and possess the land. When you go, you will come to secure people in a large land, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. And 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtal, armed with weapons of war. Then they went up and encamped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah, Therefore, they called the place Mahanehedan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, Do you know that there are in this house an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. 
So they turned aside there, and they, and they came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men were armed with weapons of war, where the children of Dan stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone to spy out the land went up. Entering there, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and molded image. And the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with the weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, like, well, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. It is better for you to be a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest in the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? Right? For people to do business for religion for business, this is an upgrade. Right? If you're in the business of religion, this is an upgrade. Hey, you're going from Micah's house where you got a good gig, 10 pieces of silver, you got a, like a 401k, you got a roof over your head, good job, low key, just play the religious game. He's got a good gig, but now it's an upgrade. You can get a whole part of one of the 12 tribes. Dan wants you to be their priest. This is in career movement. I'm being facetious, but not really. This is upward movement. If you live for the world and you're carnal, this is advancement, this is career advancement. So the priest's heart was glad. He got the upgrade. Do you want to be the priest of a small little parish or the archbishop of the diocese of Orange County, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? You want to be a little, you want to be a little fish in a little pond or a bigger fish in a bigger pond? You know, when you appeal to the pride of man, it works on all fronts, and it works in religion too. Side note, I think because I was famous in surfing, the idea of being famous in ministry has never had an appeal to me. It never has. So when I come around ambitious men in ministry who have to have fame and have to have the glory, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Go be a famous football player or surfer or something. Go be a famous businessman. Don't come to the house of the Lord to be famous. And, you know, and I, because I was that way, like, I recognize it. And I, oh. and I'm not trying to judge anybody because I got my own problems in ministry. But ambition for power is not one of them. Never has been. But the priest here, he's glad. He's moving up. He's moving up. By the way, I think I thrived at Calvary Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck for a couple key reasons, but not the least of which was this. I really loved Pastor Chuck. And he truly, he loved me. He, he, he did. He loved me. I mean, he did my son's funeral, you know. Um, and, and, but the thing about Pastor Chuck is I was, I was comfortable in his presence. Pastor Chuck didn't intimidate me. I really liked him. He was kind of quiet like my wife. Sometimes you didn't know what Pastor Chuck was thinking, unless he was mad, and then you knew. <laughs> if you got called to his office, there was a reason for it. Everyone on staff knew that. He didn't call you in the office to say hi and good morning. He was calling you in for something. Every time we got called in, three for three, all right? But I was never intimidated by Pastor Chuck. I respected Pastor Chuck, and I did not worship Pastor Chuck. But when I was at Calvary Coast Mesa for five years, I can tell you there were people that were very intimidated by Pastor Chuck, and there was definitely people that worshiped Pastor Chuck. Pastor Chuck never set out to, for an upgrade from pastoring small churches in Arizona. He is simply faithful, and then he's entrusted with a tremendous movement. And if God wants to take us from the prison to the palace, like Joseph back in the book of Genesis, that's his business. But ambitious men, the priest's heart was glad. Because it's all, it's all just business and self-serving to him. 
We cannot be serving the Lord, whether it's in the ministry or just in general. You can't serve the Lord with ulterior motives of, of, of the flesh and pride and control. Jesus said you, we're, we're the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. Least is first in the kingdom. And, and it's hard enough to watch these people outside these doors use power so abusively to control and manipulate and to lie and deceive and to take. But alas, you expect it from them. It's much worse when you see it in the church. So God help us. And this guy's a church guy, this priest. And he took the ephod, the household idols, the card image, took his place among the people. Then they turned and departed, verse 27, excuse me, 21, and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in, the front, in front of them. Then they went a good way from the house of Micah, and the men who were in the house, houses near Micah's house gathered together, and they overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and said to Micah, What ails you that you have gathered such a company? This is bad people with bad people, both religious people, right? It's almost amusing. So he said, uh, you've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priests, and you have gone away, and now what more do I have? And how can you say what ails me, ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest anger men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. It's, it's just the way it is. Bully, bully, bully. Just like, there's always a bigger fish. Men, women, we just tend to understand brute force more than anything else. But that's never the kingdom. It's just never the kingdom. This, these are the people of God. This is just, when I read this stuff, it's, but it's here. As Brian Broderson would say, the Bible is for sure written by God because men would never write these things. These are too transparent and too brutally honest of the human experience. And they're unpleasant. But we're doing pretty good in Judges, aren't we? It's been a good journey. But it's just like, they're like, hey, you turn around before we crack you. Verse 27, so they took the things Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and they, and they went to Laish, the people to a people quiet and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties to anyone. It was in the valley that belonged to Beth Rehob. So they rebuilt the city and dwelt there, and they called the name of the city Dan, out the name of Dan their father, who was born to Israel, that is Jacob. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests, to the tribe of Dan until the day of captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's card image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. They just did their own thing. A bad beginning usually is a bad ending. They did the, they did the wrong thing until captivity. For hundreds of years, they just did the wrong thing. This tribe is identified this way. And in the book of Revelation, Dan's not mentioned in the 12, you know, the 12, um, the 12,000, you know, the evangelists, you know, the, the, the 144,000 representing the tribes. One of the mysteries in that, in Revelation, if you know the story, is the, ten, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned in Revelation of the 144,000 Israelites. And most people believe it's because the tribe of Dan introduced idolatry to the nation of Israel in their covenant with God. But that's their legacy 
Now, these people that lived in the north there, they had no ties with anyone, it says. And even though they were a condemned people, and they were probably pretty good people. They seemed like they were peaceful people. They were condemned people. And good people perish just like bad people without Jesus Christ, right? But they're isolated. And just reading this reminded me how important it is that we all just keep pressing in and pressing in. While everything outside these doors tries to divide the church, attack the church, attack the faith, mock the faith, it's really important for the church of Jesus Christ to keep pressing in. It's important for us as a local congregation to keep pressing in, keep gathering, keep prioritizing gathering together. Our services, our special events, our men's gatherings, our women's gatherings. We're going to do supper together in January and February. We have the sign-up out there. We'll talk more about it at another time, but we're going to be gathering in the new year and make those extra efforts to get together people. It's so important. It's so important that we're not just here by ourselves. We are an outreach ministry of Calvary Costa Mesa. We are, we were sent out by them. We're forever associated with Calvary Costa Mesa. And I'm grateful for that. I don't agree with Brian Broderson on everything. He doesn't agree with me on everything. But we love each other and we're brothers in the faith. He discipled me. I love Brian Broderson. I love Cheryl Broderson. I love Charlotte Broderson. I was his PE teacher when he was in second grade with Joe Henschel. I'm so happy that we're a part of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. That when they fly my daughter out to do their women's event, we get to have her come here and do ours. I'm really grateful for Joe Pettick down here. I love Joe and Kathleen Pettick. I serve with Joe Pettick. I knew Joe Pettick before anyone knew Joe Pettick at Calvary Costa Mesa. I knew Joe Pettick when he was making money living in Michigan and helping out with a youth group from Michigan that would come to conferences that I did with Jeremy Camp, but no one knew who Jeremy Camp was. I became very good friends with Kathleen Pettick in 2001 when she was a secretary at Calvary Costa Mesa. I love Joe and Kathleen Pettick. This week I got a text from Tommy Coda. Hey, what's up, homie? Thinking of you, God bless you. I love Tommy Coda. I love, every, I love everything he's done for the city of Santa Ana. We're not isolated here. Brian McDaniel just got back from Haiti. One sentence text, love you, Joey. Love WG. He just got back from Haiti where they're kidnapping everybody. Comes back to the States, first thing he says, sent me a text. WG, we might be 40 people here tonight. We might even be 40. But we are not isolated in the Northern Territories. We're the Church of Jesus Christ. And we are connected to Calvary Costa Mesa. And we are connected to Don McClure and, and Mike McIntosh and Raul Reese and Jeff Johnson. And we're connected with Joe and Kathleen. We are not isolated. We're, and we're connected to the universal church. We're not just Calvary Chapel. We're much bigger than, the church is much bigger than Calvary Chapel. So yeah, we are connected with Rick Warren and people like that, and Chuck Swindoll, and John MacArthur. Guys, we're not isolated. And you're here tonight, and you know that. But who knows what the world's gonna, the devil's gonna throw at us to separate us even more we need, we, need to, we need to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit and, and agree on the things that we all agree on, which are essential things, and give space for people to just be who they are. You know? We'll do really well with that in 2022. But just know this, when you walk out of this place, we're not just here by ourselves. The saints that have gone before us, the saints that are beside us, and the saints that are coming after us, we're the church of Jesus Christ. 
December 14th, 2021. Amen.